This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode involves discussions about an especially brutal crime that ended in the death of a child. Please take care before listening. The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Most of us deal with feelings of rejection on a fairly regular basis. It may involve not landing your dream job or having a crush on someone who doesn't feel the same. Rejection never feels good, but few of us react to it with violent rage. John Eichinger was different. He had his heart set on someone and when his affections were not reciprocated, he sought cold-blooded revenge. In July of 1999, When his friend Jennifer Still was found savagely murdered in her home, John was considered a person of interest. But the case went cold until almost six years later, when a similar homicide placed him directly under fire. Would Eichinger pay for all of his crimes? Or would he talk his way out of prosecution? This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I walk you through the events that motivated one dangerous man to kill four innocent people. This case takes us to the Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area, 15 miles northwest of the city in an area called King of Prussia, sometimes referred to as KOP. Its claim to fame is hosting one of the largest shopping malls in the country. Other than that, King of Prussia is a pretty standard stretch of middle-class suburbia. John Eichinger was a New Jersey native. He grew up in Summers Point, located on the Jersey Shore. For most of his adult life, though, he resided in the KOP area. John Charles Eichinger was born on February 18, 1972, in Malvern, Pennsylvania. We know he was one of four boys, but little has been mentioned publicly about his childhood. John attended Upper Marion Area High School, the same school attended by three out of four of his victims. While in high school, John became part of a social circle made up of avid D&D players. D&D refers to Dungeons and Dragons, which is a fantasy tabletop role-playing game that was introduced in the mid-1970s. 
Its popularity surged in the 90s, prompting public concern that the game's darker elements might negatively impact youth morality. While D&D connected John to his victims, his violent actions cannot be blamed on the role-playing game. John knew Jennifer Still for several years through their D&D group and had formed a deep infatuation for her. It enraged him that she was romantically involved with someone else. Jennifer Still was born and raised in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania, a small, close-knit community about a mile from Upper Marion. Jennifer didn't have the easiest childhood. When she was born in 1979, she had a cleft lip and palate, along with scoliosis. Throughout her youth, she had several surgeries to address these conditions, but her physical differences meant that she was constantly bullied. When she discovered D&D, Jennifer felt a sense of belonging for the first time in her life. The game provided a level of escapism and camaraderie she'd never known before. She even met her boyfriend, Kevin, through their mutual D&D fandom. On July 4th, 1999, Jennifer turned 20. The aspiring young poet had her whole life ahead of her. Two days later, she was found brutally murdered in the basement apartment she and Kevin shared. On the evening of July 6th, Kevin came home after a shift at the car wash where he worked. He was surprised that Jennifer was nowhere in sight. He called out for her, but got no response. As Kevin approached their bedroom, he spotted Jennifer lying on the floor. Taking a step closer, he realized she was lying in a large pool of blood. Emergency responders soon arrived at the scene, but the young woman could not be revived. This was not a home invasion. It was a massacre done by someone who knew the victim personally. There were no signs of forced entry, telling detectives that Jennifer had been comfortable enough with her attacker to invite them inside. An autopsy report revealed that she'd been stabbed in the abdomen 15 times. Her throat had also been slashed from ear to ear. It was a case of overkill. The stab wounds alone would have ended her life, but her killer had taken it a step further. Bridgeport Police Sergeant John Kane called the crime scene one of the most brutal he'd seen in his entire career. To him, the vicious nature of the crime suggested it was fueled by uncontrollable anger and rage. When the crime scene was processed, investigators noticed a small spot of blood on the bathroom sink. Montgomery County Detective John Fallon felt confident the blood belonged to the killer. He told Oxygen that when somebody stabs someone, it's very likely they cut themselves. Of course, any DNA evidence would only be useful if investigators identified a match. The first step in the investigation was interviewing those closest to Jennifer. Her boyfriend, Kevin, was quickly cleared as a suspect. His alibi of being at work all day was confirmed and his DNA did not match the blood drop in the bathroom. But it was Kevin who mentioned the ties he and Jennifer had to D&D. Detectives questioned Jennifer's friends, including John Eichinger. 
John claimed he could not have been involved because he was in New Jersey the day Jennifer was killed. He redirected investigators' attention to two other people in their role-playing circle named Danny and Destiny. John claimed they had information relevant to the case. This is where the public's misconception of D&D was really exploited. Destiny spun an elaborate tall tale telling detectives she was a witch who'd married Jennifer in a Wiccan ceremony. Danny played along, validating Destiny's claims. They both believed Jennifer was possessed by demons and needed an exorcism. Destiny also told detectives about a recent, disturbingly vivid dream about stabbing Jennifer to save her from the evil entity possessing her. The press latched on to the idea that occultism played a role in Jennifer's murder. Eventually, despite their vivid imaginations, Destiny and Danny were ruled out as suspects through DNA swabs. With no additional leads, the case went cold. For almost six years, Jennifer's loved ones were left without answers. Who could have committed such a cold-blooded killing? And would they really get away with it? Thirty million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair. And although going through this can feel lonely and frustrating, the truth is, it's more than common, it's actually normal. The problem is that it's not openly talked about, especially amongst women. And when we don't talk about it, that loneliness and frustration can deepen. It's time to change the conversation and join the thousands of women who are standing up for their strands with Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement, clinically shown to improve your hair growth, thickness, and visible scalp coverage. There are so many things that can affect your hair. For example, one of the most common reasons I've heard amongst my friends has been hair thinning due to pregnancy and fluctuating hormones. Nutrafol takes into consideration the many factors for maintaining healthy hair growth by targeting the five root causes of thinning, which are stress, hormones, environment, nutrition, and metabolism. Nutrafol has three unique formulas to support women throughout all stages of life, including postpartum and menopause. Each formula is physician formulated using natural, drug-free, medical-grade ingredients in consistently effective dosages, so you get the most reliable results. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months. Now that's impressive. No wonder over 3,000 top doctors and stylists recommend Nutrafol as an effective and high-quality solution for healthier hair. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the code MURDERISH to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it is only available to U.S. customers for a limited time, plus free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code MURDERISH.
Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Nothing is more annoying than having an exciting day planned only to wake up to bad allergies. First world problems, I know, but sometimes allergies ruin my entire day. If you suffer from allergies, I know you understand my struggle. No one wants to go through the day sounding like they're talking underwater. Luckily, we have Astapro. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Between my daughter's school events, Zoom meetings, and podcast recording sessions, I don't have time to deal with allergy issues. And who wants to listen to a podcast when I sound like this? Luckily, you don't have to, because I use Astapro for quick and effective relief. You're welcome. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Another young woman, Heather Greaves, played D&D with the same group of friends. She also happened to live just 10 minutes away from where Jennifer Still had been killed. John Eichinger had been part of Heather's life for a long time. The 27-year-old mother of two had known John since high school. For years, John and Heather both worked as checkout clerks at the King of Prussia location of regional supermarket chain Acme. In early 2005, John transferred to the Summers Point, New Jersey location and moved back in with his mother. At 33 years old, sacrificing his independence to cut living costs must have proved difficult, but he'd still be around a 90-minute drive from his friends and planned to attend D&D games as often as possible. While John and Heather were connected socially, their lives were very different. John was more introverted and chose behind-the-scenes types of hobbies. Aside from playing D&D, he was also an avid chess player. Heather, on the other hand, was vivacious, outgoing, and heavily involved in her community. She was an avid churchgoer and a social member of the King of Prussia Volunteer Firefighter Coalition. Everyone knew her to be a doting, attentive mother to her two daughters, six-year-old Melody and three-year-old Avery, who were half-sisters. The proud mother frequently attended Girl Scout meetings with Melody, where Heather easily befriended other local moms. Heather's younger sister, Lisa, was more guarded about who she befriended, but was known to be loyal and nurturing. An obituary would later read, if you knew Lisa, you had no choice but to love her. 
Lisa had big plans for her life. The 23-year-old surgical technician student intended to start nursing school in the fall. Lisa and Heather shared a home in Upper Marion Township with their father, George. Heather's younger daughter, Avery, also lived there full-time, while Melody split her time between the homes of her estranged parents. On March 25, 2005, an unimaginable darkness would be cast over the entire Greaves family forever. That morning, George left at around 9.30 for his job as a furniture salesman. During his lunch hour, George called home to check in, but received no answer. He didn't really think anything of it at the time and finished out his day as usual. When he arrived home at around 4.30 p.m., he encountered a horrific scene. Lisa, Heather, and three-year-old Avery had been brutally killed. Fortunately, Heather's other daughter, Melody, had been staying with her father at the time of the incident. If she'd been at the Greaves' residence that day, it's likely she would have also been killed. In a shaky 911 call quoted by Oxygen, George said, there's blood all over the place. It's just like a slaughter here. When law enforcement arrived at the scene of the triple homicide, they were horrified. Heather was found in the kitchen Lisa's body was splayed across the bathroom doorway, and little Avery had been struck down in the hallway. The sheer brutality of these grisly killings would come to light following their autopsies. Heather had been stabbed repeatedly in the abdomen and left to bleed out before her attacker circled back to slit her throat. Lisa was also stabbed repeatedly in the stomach more than 35 times. Then there was Avery, just a toddler, who suffered a slashed neck and a stab wound to the back. She'd been stabbed with such force that the blade had gone straight through her back and out of her chest, pinning her to the floor. The act of murdering a child involves a level of depravity even some of the worst perpetrators are not capable of inflicting. Montgomery County detectives felt immense pressure to find out what had led to this massacre. They were in a race against the clock to identify the person responsible and bring them to justice. Detectives canvassed the Greaves neighborhood and hit a stroke of luck. One neighbor had seen John Eichinger leaving the house earlier that day and noticed blood on his shirt. The neighbor recognized John from when he worked at the King of Prussia Acme Mart. That morning, Heather had crossed paths with another neighbor. According to a police affidavit, the unnamed neighbor said that Heather had mentioned John's plan to come by with flowers as an early birthday gift, but she insisted there wasn't any romantic interest on her part. John seemed like a nice guy, but she only considered him a friend. With John now on their radar, detectives headed to the Jersey market where he now worked. Detective Richard Nielsen, a Montgomery County detective, and Detective James Godby, of the Upper Marion Police Department asked to speak with John in a manager's office. John seemed willing to cooperate. A long discussion followed to assess his relationship with the victims. 
John said before coming to work, he spent the day at Maryland's Ocean City Boardwalk. During their conversation, detectives noticed that John had a bandaged hand. He claimed his dog bit him, but they saw right through his excuses and decided to engage in a game of cat and mouse. The detectives left the room, supposedly to answer a call. When they returned, they told John that incriminating DNA evidence had been found linking him to the crime scene. At the time, it was a bluff that paid off. John cracked under the pressure and confessed to all three murders. He admitted that he was in love with Heather. John had shown up at Heather's house, intending to convince her to break up with her current boyfriend and be with him instead. But Heather rejected his advances and John responded with unrelenting violence. And he wasn't shy about delving into all the graphic details. Before arriving at Heather's house, he'd already replayed in his mind a scenario where Heather rejected him, so he was prepared for that. Tucked into his waistband and covered by his sweatshirt was a large, heavy-bladed hunting knife and a pair of rubber gloves. When the conversation with Heather did not go his way, John couldn't handle being rejected by a woman he'd obsessed over for years. An argument ensued and John pulled out his knife. Heather struggled to grab the weapon, but John gripped the handle until she gave up. He drove the blade right into her stomach. According to court documents, John told detectives he had heard in movies and books that it was easier to puncture organs than through the chest, where it was more difficult because of hitting bone. Heather's daughter, Avery, had witnessed the initial attack. Standing in the kitchen doorway with John's back to her, she watched as the knife penetrated her mother's skin. Heather cried out, shouting for Avery to call 911, but the mother-daughter interaction shifted John's attention. As Avery bolted down the hallway to look for her Aunt Lisa, she kept repeating the same phrase, John killed mommy. John panicked, chasing after Avery. He lunged after her and landed a deep gash in the little girl's neck. John spotted Lisa before Avery could reach her. She emerged from the bathroom, wondering about the commotion in the house, but she immediately froze when she saw John wielding a knife. As Lisa tried to rush back into the bathroom and shut the door, John overpowered her and drove the knife into her abdomen again and again. By this point, Avery had collapsed face down in the hallway from her neck injury. On the way back toward the kitchen to check on Heather, John passed Avery. He knelt down to stab her in the back, ensuring her wounds were fatal. When asked how he could kill a child, John told detectives he needed to avoid being identified. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, he commented about the decision to take Avery's life, saying, I had known her since she was born and she knew my name. She could speak my name. Okay, I'll admit it. Try it free for 30 days gets me every single time. 
And honestly, it's a great deal to get a whole month to try out a new app or service before having to pay for it. But that's not the problem. The problem is that by the time the month is over, I've already forgotten about the free trial. And then I'm paying for a monthly service I don't even use. Most of us think we spend around $80 per month on subscriptions. But in reality, the actual total cost is closer to $200. If you don't know exactly how much you're spending every month, you need Rocket Money. Rocket Money, formerly known as Truebill, is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps you lower your bills all in one place. Over 80% of us have subscriptions we forgot about, like that one streaming service you signed up for to watch one show on and then never used again. Let's be real. Most of us don't have the time to sift through our bank statements to find those pesky subscriptions. But thankfully, Rocket Money will quickly and easily identify your subscriptions so you don't have to. And seriously, it's as easy as the click of a button. All you have to do is identify which subscriptions you don't want and press cancel, and Rocket Money will cancel it for you. No more long hold times with customer service or tedious emailing back and forth. Rocket Money makes canceling subscriptions easy and effortless. Over 3 million people have used Rocket Money, saving the average person up to $720 a year. As much as I'd like to say I know exactly what is going in and out of my bank account, I was shocked to find out how much money I was spending on subscriptions I didn't even use. Thanks to Rocket Money, I got it all under control with the click of a button. Stop throwing your money away, cancel unwanted subscriptions, and manage your expenses the easy way by going to rocketmoney.com murderish. That's rocketmoney.com murderish. Rocketmoney.com murderish. in the kitchen, Heather was barely clinging to life. John finished her off by slitting her throat, then washed his hands at the sink. That's when he noticed he'd been cut during the struggle. To avoid dripping his own blood at the scene, he slid on a rubber glove. He revealed to detectives that before leaving the scene, he'd cut Lisa's shirt open to make it appear like she had been the intended target and that this had been a sexual assault. He hoped this would confuse law enforcement and complicate an investigation. The details John provided in his confession were confirmed to be true through DNA analysis. Now that law enforcement had John's DNA sample, they were able to tie him to another homicide. During an initial examination of the Greaves crime scene, Detective Albert Donnell and former District Attorney Bruce Castor Jr could not ignore a shared sense of deja vu. They had both worked on the Jennifer Still case years before. The manner in which Heather and Lisa were killed had a lot of similarities to the cold case from 1999. Using John's DNA, investigators found a match to the blood drop on the sink in Jennifer's apartment. Detectives told John about this finding and he made another confession. He had killed Jennifer Still. 
Just like Heather, Jennifer had rejected John's romantic advances and refused to break up with her boyfriend before being stabbed to death. It was clear John's motive for both crimes was obsession and jealousy. On the day Jennifer was killed, she hadn't argued with John the way Heather had. Instead, Jennifer gently told John she didn't think of him in that way and put a hand on his shoulder to comfort him. He responded by turning around and stabbing Jennifer in the stomach. In court documents cited by the Philadelphia Inquirer, John revealed, I had the knife in my hand. I turned away from her for a second and I couldn't believe she was doing that to me. She got real close to me. I thought, you're ripping my heart out and now you're getting close to me? She put her hand on my shoulder. I turned around and stabbed her in the stomach. After I stabbed her the first time, she stepped back but didn't fall. Her blood splattered out at me. I lunged at her. I just kept stabbing her. I slit her throat as she slid down the wall. I let her body weight cut her throat against the knife. It was a brutal way to die, especially at the hands of someone who claimed to care so deeply about Jennifer. John must have been proud of his first kill. He kept the blood-spattered outfit he wore that day and stored his knife in a cooler. In an extremely depraved twist, the murder weapon became part of his annual Halloween costume. John admitted to handing out candy to trick-or-treaters while wearing the knife in a belted sheath, his rubber gloves, and a ghost face mask from the horror film Scream to complete the costume. These disturbing keepsakes along with newspaper articles about both crimes, were found when investigators searched John's home. Forensic testing confirmed the same knife used to kill Jennifer in 1999 had been used in the 2005 triple homicide. John was arrested after both confessions and transported back to Montgomery County, where he faced four counts of first-degree murder. Additional charges tacked on included two counts of possession of an instrument of crime and three counts of unsworn falsification to authorities. In a September 2005 pre-trial hearing, Detective Nielsen testified about John's confessions. Some of his statements regarding the Greaves crime scene had been made en route to Montgomery County. John contended later he didn't know they were on record and therefore they shouldn't be admissible but the judge ruled in favor of prosecutors. Another detail was a jailhouse journal John wrote reflecting on the Greaves murders that was taken into evidence. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, John wrote, Heather and I struggled for a couple minutes, Avery watching from behind me. I won control of the knife and stabbed Heather. Then Avery said three words and I froze. Avery said, John killed mommy repeated it several times. Several weeks later in mid-October, John waived a jury trial in favor of a stipulated bench trial. County Court Judge William R. Carpenter convicted him on all counts, leaving a jury of his peers to decide if John's crimes warranted the death penalty. On November 1st, the case entered the sentencing phase. Jury members examined aggravating factors that included being convicted of another state offense separate from the Greaves murders, 
committing murder to prevent testimony, and killing a child under 12. According to the Philadelphia Inquirer, District Attorney Bruce Castor Jr. said before the hearing, when you have the killing of a child, that's an aggravating circumstance right there. This is an ugly series of crimes, and the jury will get the full flavor of it. Only one mitigating factor was identified. According to a psychiatric assessment, the offender had been under the influence of extreme mental and emotional disturbance during the commission of all four murders. But the jury panel quickly decided the aggravating factors of this case greatly outweighed any mitigation tactics. They unanimously recommended that John Eichinger be sentenced to death. On December 12, 2005, before John's sentence was read, time was set aside for victim impact statements. George Greaves vowed to hire mercenaries to deliver justice if John ever tried to escape prison. Filled with anger and grief, he was quoted by the Philadelphia Inquirer as saying, this past Good Friday, their lives were suddenly taken in an incomprehensible carnage by the hands of John Charles Eichinger. Three innocent, beautiful lives were destroyed, and my life too, as I knew it, was destroyed. The damage John left behind was immeasurable. The ripple effects of his decisions were nothing short of catastrophic. Jennifer's mother, Wendy, insisted the offender should never be allowed to live in society again. John was too dangerous to walk free. According to mainline media news, Wendy announced wistfully, my daughter was a very bright, independent young woman. We will never know what she could have made of her life. She was robbed of that opportunity. Her life cut cruelly short. As reported by the Philadelphia Inquirer, Judge Carpenter publicly agreed, calling the defendant evil and saying, you took the lives of four innocent people for no reason. The trial court imposed three consecutive death sentences for the Greaves murders and one sentence of life imprisonment for the murder of Jennifer Still. A few more years were tacked on for the additional charges. The main focus though, was that John Eichinger would be executed by lethal injection for the lives he'd taken in such an unspeakable manner. A string of appeals were subsequently filed. John's attorneys tried to get the death sentence commuted to life. They motioned for a new trial and argued their client's rights had been violated during interrogation. Their efforts would not pan out as all appeals were denied. John Eichinger remains on death row at the Pennsylvania Correctional Institute awaiting execution. It's difficult for most people to comprehend how feelings of rejection could fuel two separate incidents of lethal violence. John's victims trusted him as a friend, believing he cared about them as people. He took advantage of that trust, fantasizing about a future with these young women who didn't reciprocate his desires. John was a boastful, remorseless killer who responded to emotional distress with intense violence. His victims paid with their lives, all because a grown man could not handle being denied what he wanted. 
We can only hope that future crimes can be prevented by analyzing the behavior and mentality of dangerous men like John Eichinger. With Heather's death, her daughter Melody was left motherless and robbed of an aunt and a sister all at once. Melody's grandfather, George Greaves, sought and won custody. His love and support empowered her to heal from the profound tragedy. In 2017, while in her senior year of high school, Melody was awarded a $10,000 academic scholarship. At the time, she announced her intentions of pursuing a degree in early childhood education. The way she's been able to move on with her life would make her mother so proud. Other people connected to the victims had their own way of processing grief. Jennifer Still's mother, Wendy, co-founded the Montgomery County Chapter of Parents of Murdered Children, or POMC. The national nonprofit provides emotional and legal support to parents and other survivors impacted by the homicide of a loved one. Thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Murderish. Don't forget to save the date and grab your tickets now for the virtual show I'm hosting on Sunday, March 5th, 2023. Tickets are on sale now at moment.co slash murderish or just go to murderish.com. That's M-O-M-E-N-T dot C-O slash murderish or murderish.com. See you guys at the show. Listen up, Murderish fans. If you'd rather listen to the podcast ad-free, check out Murderish Behind the Mic on Patreon, where you can get access to ad-free episodes, as well as bonus content and other cool perks. To sign up for Murderish Behind the Mic, visit Murderish.com or just go to Patreon and search for Murderish there. I want to send a big thank you to Stella G and Deanna B for joining Murderish Behind the Mic. Thank you both so much for your support. I'm really looking forward to interacting with you on Patreon. And guess what? On the evening of the show I'm hosting on March 5th, all Murderish Patreon subscribers will get into the after party for free that night. Visit Murderish.com for more details. If you need more content to listen to, I host another true crime podcast called Dirty Money Moves, Women in White Collar Crime. The podcast follows my investigation of a woman I met a few years ago a woman who turned out to be a prolific scam artist. It's a wild story that even has ties to the Michael Jackson scandal. You can subscribe to Dirty Money Moves wherever you're listening right now. There are a bunch of episodes for you to binge right now. You guys, do me the biggest favor and tell your friends about Murderish or leave the show a positive rating and review in any podcast app. Leaving a rating and review helps other people find the show. Follow Murderish on Instagram and TikTok at Murderish Podcast. Both platforms are a great way to get to know me better because I do a lot of funny videos, short true crime stories, and everything in between. And I also love engaging with people there, so check it out. Murderish sound design and audio editing is done by Pod Machine with oversight by Emily Crane of Cloud10 Media. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish.